Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning in person at our building on Hill Road at 10.30 a.m. Starting this morning uh, and going through uh, the month of July, we're going to be doing our church in the field service. And if you haven't been, we've been doing that the last couple years. Uh, it's kind of a chill environment. Bring a lawn chair, bring a, bring a bleach bleach, bring a beach blanket, and uh, we bring out pop-up tents for shade. Uh, it's just kind of a nice, chill environment. We still have kids' church uh, indoors, so you can bring your kids, and they can hang out outside. Some do, or you can go have your kids be in the indoor kids' church as well. Um, also, uh, we have a new podcast that we launched last week called Starting Points, and the podcast is available on our Faith on Hill feed, Apple Podcast, Spotify, our Facebook page. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And the Starting Points podcast is a short podcast, and it is designed to be a starting point for your studying the Bible. And so it's going to go through each book of the Bible, one episode at a time. Uh, it's going to look at major sections of the Bible. So uh, this first episode was a big overview of the Bible, and it's about 12, 13 minutes long. And then the one that's releasing this next week uh, is an overview of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so we give kind of an overview there, and then the one the next week we'll start to look at the book of Genesis. Uh, so I know the one uh, that's going to be released tomorrow is about seven, eight minutes long. So they're, they're not long podcasts, uh, but they're designed for a commute. Uh, you can listen to it while you're making dinner, whatever. And it's a starting point, an entry point into studying the Bible. That's in addition to our 20-minute Bible study podcast, uh, which is... Uh, well, exactly what it sounds like, 20-minute long Bible studies. And then we have our Talk About Everything or Talk About Anything podcast, which releases once a month, and that's a long-form podcast. I think the last episode was an hour and 15 minutes long. So these are meant to be uh, longer listens. So those are all available uh, on the same feed, and you can check those out. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 14, which has three of the most well-known stories of the Bible. Now, when you say well-known stories in the Bible, there's two different tiers or levels of well-known story. There's what we might call church famous, and then there is uh, all-around well-known. So the church well-known stories are the ones that people in the church know about. People in the church tend to have heard of, say, like Acts chapter 2 or, um, you know, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. People in the church might know that the wise men or the magi came after the Christmas story. Those are things that are somewhat well known. People outside of the church have heard of you know, these other stories that are fewer and farther between. People outside of the church have heard of Noah's Ark. People outside of the church have heard of David and Goliath. People outside of the church have heard of the whole walking on water thing. Even if they don't know exactly where it's from, they, they have heard of these stories. Uh, there are stories that are well-known within the church, and there are stories that are well-known to everyone. This chapter has three well-known stories. The beheading of John the Baptist is well known within the church, but feeding the 5,000 is kind of on the bubble. It's well known within the church, and it is fairly well known outside of the church. And 
walking on water, which is the third story in this chapter, is well known to everyone. But here's the thing with well-known stories. What I have found is there is like the basic synopsis version, which is sometimes right, but sometimes it's wrong or just incomplete. My wife and I were talking about this recently. You might be scrolling on a streaming service or whatever, and you'll see these little summary blurbs about what a movie or an episode of a television show is about. And uh, sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong, and sometimes they're just sort of in this weird in-between where it's like, yes, that's technically right, all of that happened in the show, but that's not really what the episode is about. And I find uh, them amusing, especially when they're wrong. And that's kind of how it gets with these well-known stories. We have this general idea what they're about, but then when you actually read the text, you go, oh, wait, is that really what's going on? So let's read here. Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 says, at that time. So this is basically at the same time period as uh, Jesus is teaching in the parables and being rejected by his hometown, uh, which we studied in the previous chapter. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay, so we as an audience are like, wait, John the Baptist is dead? Because Matthew hasn't given us that information. Either it's because uh, Matthew is uh, just, you know, kind of uh, likes a good plot twist, or it's because it was such a well-known event to the people that Matthew is writing to. And remember, Matthew was primarily writing to a Jewish audience, especially those in the area surrounding Israel. And so it was such a well-known event that people wouldn't have questioned, oh, John the Baptist died. But then Matthew gives us the background information. But before we get into that, it's interesting that Herod hears about all that God is doing, and he says, oh, it's not that Jesus might be another prophet, which was a common belief about Jesus. It, it's not that Jesus might be the Messiah, which was a growing belief about Jesus. He says it's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Why does he think that? Well, we're going to find out that Herod has him put to death. But it's interesting to me that that's the first place his mind goes. I have found experientially that if I were to say something like, all of us struggle with sin, where's the first place your mind goes? That's the thing that we feel we're guilty of. Now, we're going to find out that Herod is guilty of a lot of sins, but he's only feeling guilty about one. So here's my general thought with that one. First, if we're feeling guilty about something, bring it to Jesus. Let God do the work in our lives, but also have an awareness as we're going to read. Herod has a lot of other stuff going on. He should be feeling guilty about a lot of other things. It says that, uh, verse 3, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Okay, so we know from history that uh, Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife, and he had uh, taken her as his wife. And so John the Baptist as a prophet to Israel, was speaking to the king, saying, it is not right what you have done. 
what you have done is, is against the way that God would have you live. And so Herod throws John in prison for speaking out, but he won't kill him because John has too much popularity among the people. Then it says in verse 6, on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests, and it pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked, and prompted by her mother, she said, give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered her request be granted, and John be was beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Okay. What was happening in Herod's palace was really bad. What was happening in Herod's palace was really bad. What was happening in Herod's palace is also reality. It is not unique. I guarantee that throughout the centuries and the millennia that you could go to royal courts and places of power and find, if not the exact same thing, then similar concepts and ideas and sins and evil. I guarantee it. There is murder happening. John is murdered. There is human trafficking happen. What's happening here? Herodias pimps out her daughter to get what she wants. I'm going to put my daughter in an exposed position so I can get the vengeance that I desire. Herod basically is lusting after his niece. Remember, his wife's daughter would by definition be his niece because his, you know, the father would be his brother. And then he gets himself in a bad place, but because of pride, he won't do the right thing. It says because of his dinner guests and because of his oaths. He could have said, no, I'm not going to do that evil thing, but he put himself in a bad place, an exposed place. And because of that, he would not relent, and he did an evil thing, and he murdered John the Baptist because of it. Now, someone might say, well, of course, that happens among the elites. That happens among the powerful. That happens with people who hung out with Epstein. You know, that happens among those people. And I've had people say that, by the way. I remember one time I was talking to someone and they were talking about, you know, the America that used to be. And, and I was saying, well, and, and then they made this statement, which always gets me, you know, people don't know their history and they don't know how America used to be. And I go, I've read a lot of history. You want to know how America used to be? And I started like just detailing stuff I had been reading. And, and uh, they're like, well, that's the elites. That was their response. That's the elites. Now, certainly, people who are elite in terms of power and wealth can get away with a lot more. We know that's true. It, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that somebody with a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of influence get different treatment. We know that happens. But let's not pretend that this doesn't happen in real life. Let's not pretend that in our day, there aren't people who are full of rage because somebody is speaking the truth of God into their darkness. There aren't people in our day who are full of rage because somebody is saying what they think is good is actually evil in God's eyes. Let's not pretend that in our day, there aren't people who put themselves first over those they should be protecting and caring for. 
that there aren't Herodias's who are putting their own interests ahead of their children or their loved ones, that there aren't people who are being pimped out, human trafficked for the good of somebody who should be their protector, but is instead their abuser. The Epsteins are not just the elites. Let's not pretend that we don't know what's going on on McLaughlin, that we don't know what's happening on McLaughlin in the motels and in the parlors. We know what's happening but we don't want to face it. Everything that's going on in Herod's palace is reality in our day. Certainly among elites, absolutely, but also among average Americans. This is still the case. But what happens in that palace led to a miracle. I don't see a miracle here. Let's keep reading. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. So John's disciples came and told Jesus that John had been beheaded and murdered and everything that had happened and Jesus withdraws and he goes away somewhere private. Why? Because he's grieving. He's grieving. The human part of Jesus is grieving the loss of John the Baptist. When somebody dies, we grieve because we don't get to see them anymore. It's not that Jesus was worried about John's eternal destination, but he didn't get to see him anymore. Don't forget, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist was blood. He was family. And he's mourning the death of John the Baptist. Not just that he died, he's mourning how he died. I watched a video this week, and George Harrison from the Beatles was being asked about four or five years after the murder of John Lennon, how, you know, just his thoughts on the whole thing. And, and, and George uh, said, well, you know, everyone dies. But it was how he died that makes it so tragic, that he died so young that it wasn't a natural thing, that it was by murder, by violence. That's the tragedy. So Jesus is grieving the loss of his family member. He's grieving how John died. He's grieving that John, who was a servant of Jesus, died in such a horrible way. He's grieving that. And the divine Jesus is also grieving. The divine Jesus is grieving because his servant was faithful and suffered on his behalf. The divine Jesus is grieving because of all of the sin that is happening in Herod's palace. You don't think that that grieves God? I think he's grieving on a personal level. Like the the sin that happened to this, this daughter of Herodias and we don't know how old she is. It's all bad, no matter how old she is. But, but he's grieving for this, this child, this teenager, who, who has been abused and, and manipulated. He's grieving for the, the, the immorality happening. He's grieving for the murder happening. He's grieving that the king of, supposedly the king of Israel, and the, the palace, the, the, the leadership of Israel is in such sinful hands. It says he withdraws to grieve. But hearing this, the crowds followed Jesus on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So Jesus gets in the boat and goes off to a private place just to grieve. But the crowds want to be with Jesus. And people are still coming and they're coming and they go, wait, we came to see Jesus. Where is he? Oh, he went in a boat. He's over there. 
So the crowds go around the lake and they bring their sick and they bring their troubles and they bring their pain. And it says he had compassion on them. And as the evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Remember I said that what happened in the palace led to a miracle? Because of what happened in the palace, Jesus withdraws to this remote place. Because Jesus is in this remote place, these crowds, thousands of people, follow to where Jesus is. And now they have a need. This need is for basic sustenance. They don't have food. They don't have, uh, you know, enough to sustain them. And, and they didn't plan this through. They just wanted to be where Jesus was. And now the disciples are going, hey, we got this problem. We've got thousands of people. It's estimated, it's estimated that there were over 10,000 people in this crowd. And they don't have enough to eat. We need to send them away. Because the disciples don't have supplies, resources for 10,000 people. They just went as a small group to give Jesus some time to process the death of John the Baptist. And now there's this massive need. We're in a time with massive need. People are hurting. People are broken. And one thing has led to another, right? Just like in this situation... Herod's sin led to the imprisonment of John, led to all of the stuff that happened in the palace, led to the death of John. The death of John caused Jesus to go to a remote place to grieve and process. And then these crowds come and nothing is planned and they've just come to see Jesus and they don't have enough food and all this stuff is built to this moment. And in the same way, you could see that where that's happened, where we had division after division after division, and then we came into a pandemic. And people forget what was going on at the beginning of 2020. Before the pandemic really took hold, right, we had impeachments, we had looming war threats, we had political division all through our country, and then we had the pandemic. And then we had everything that we have dealt with since. We've had the, the tensions, and we've had uh, riots, and we've had all of these things, and it's one thing after another. And I'm sitting here in 2022 dealing and talking with people who in 2020, it was rough, but they had reserves in the tank. And in 2022, they've got nothing. And there is great need. And the church can look around and say, what do we have? You know, it, it, let's, let's not kid ourselves. The church in America has constricted. And it's not all this world's fault, Right? The church in America is constricted as Christians have constricted. The church in America has constricted as Christians have sought their own good and their own rights over seeking the mission of God to be a witness of Jesus and to make disciples of Jesus. And we're in a moment where there's need all around and it's easy to say, what can we do? And Jesus, I believe, is saying to us, you give them something to eat. And then, in verse 17, they respond, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, 
One of the other Gospels tells us that it was actually a little boy in the crowd who had thought to bring some food, or let's be honest, his mom had thought, if you're going to go here, take some food with you. Somebody had thought ahead. So the disciples say, oh, we've got this, but they don't even have that. It's somebody else's. But what they have, Jesus says, here, bring them to me. And he directed people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to people. And they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now that's where people estimate there's over 10,000 people in this crowd because they only counted the men. And so it's estimated that there would have been as many, if not more, women and children, so you're easily at 10,000. And it says that they all ate. They all ate. You know, we can look around and say, there's so much need, the need is so great, how can we do anything? The disciples started off by just handing the first person a piece of bread, some of the fish, and then they handed another person a piece of bread and some of the fish, and they just kept going. The miracle, of course, is that it never ran out. And I have no idea how that looked. You know, did they just, did bread just kind of keep appearing, or was it just this thing where it's like, okay, this is my last piece, I hand it, wait, how did more pieces come? I don't know. I'm very curious about it. That's a like, when I get to heaven kind of question. But the bigger thing isn't how the miracle happened. It's what the miracle was doing. It was these 12 disciples who had nothing. They didn't even have the fish and the bread that they claimed to have. It was somebody else's that they were co-opting. And Jesus just says, go and do the work I've called you to do. Big things start small. Big things start small. The church the worldwide church of Jesus Christ started with a few people that were hiding in a room in Jerusalem and then the Holy Spirit descended. This is Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descended on them in power and thousands of people responded that day and it grew and it grew and it spread and there are brothers and sisters that we have who are brothers and sisters through faith in Jesus and they are all over the world in any city. It's a... It's a it's a wonderful thing. As I've, over the years, had the privilege of traveling down into Mexico, east into Europe, and, and to, to see all over the world that we have family of faith. And it started with just a few people hiding in a room, and then the Holy Spirit came. And over the years, we've seen the same thing. I talked about this last Sunday. But, you know, our church and our family of churches here in Oregon were started by four men who came and preached the gospel in, in the 1870s. They came to Oregon and started planting churches all over Oregon and Washington. Something starts small and grows. And that's real life faith. There is trauma in our world. There is sin in our world. There are events that are just building and snowballing on top of one another. And then Jesus just says, here, do this work. And so they stepped out and they did. And through the power of God, the work was done. I have no faith in myself. I have no faith in people. But I have great faith in what God will do in and through people who are submitted and surrendered to him. And you might think, oh man, that's it. You see God do this miracle. There are 
thousands of people who are hungry and you have next to nothing. I mean, five loaves and two fish is basically like nothing. You have next to nothing and yet God accomplishes this great worth. That's it. Your faith is done. It is sealed. It is cemented. But what happens? It says immediately after everyone's eaten, it's evening, Jesus told the disciples, get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. So go back to where we were. And then he dismissed the crowd, said, hey guys, go home. It's getting dark. Head home. You've got enough food. You're going to be good on the way. Nobody's going to faint, you know, of hunger or anything like that. Go and, and be blessed. And the crowd goes home. And then it says he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So the crowd has left, the disciples are in the boat heading back over, and Jesus goes to pray because he still needs that time to, to process, to grieve, to be with the Father. And if Jesus needed to do that, how much more do we? Oh, I, I, Adam, you're talking about God doing miracles. I don't see any of that in my life. Well, when was the last time you stepped out? When was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you spent time with the Father? Jesus did those things. And it says later that night... <clears throat> he was alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land and it was being buffeted by waves because the wind was against it. Now, I have not been to Israel yet, but I have a lot of friends who have. And the way the Sea of Galilee is set up is that it is, it, it's called a sea, but it's a big lake. And it's not hard for the waves to get rough there when the winds come up. And I've seen this growing up in Seattle. You know, there's Lake Washington, which is the, uh, the east of Seattle. Basically, Lake Washington runs along the eastern edge of the city of Seattle. And it has, you might know, two floating bridges that go across. And if the wind picks up, they actually will have to close the floating bridges sometimes because the wind is too much. And I've driven across. I used to have a job on the east side of the lake. And so I'd every day have to drive across the floating bridge. And I have had times where the wind is so great that waves are coming up over the, the side of the bridge. Uh, you can actually feel the bridge moving, like if traffic slows down, you know, and then you can actually feel the bridge moving as the waves are kind of pushing it back and forth. And so all of a sudden the wind picks up. It doesn't even have to be stormy, right? You could just have one of those windy, sunny days and the waves are just coming and making it difficult because they're just rowing a boat. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It is a gross, a, a gross, a ghost, they said, crying out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. It's amazing how quickly they go back to superstition. Man, people are prone to superstition. You know, even in our enlightened day, right? Even our, our very scientific understanding of the world, it is amazing how prone people can get to superstition. And so they're out. They have been working against the waves all night. They're exhausted. They're tired. And then they see Jesus walking out on the water, and their first thought is, it's a, it's a spirit. It's an evil spirit. But Jesus calls out to them, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. 
Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And all those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, and people brought out their sick to him, and they begged him to let the sick touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Now you might think, if you are out in the middle of nowhere, and you've got just a handful of pieces of bread and a couple fish, and there are thousands and thousands of people, maybe 10,000 people who need feeding. And through just that small bit of resources, Jesus feeds every person who is hungry. That your faith would be cemented. It'd be fixed. I'd have no question that Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. And yet, when they get out in the boat, and they're out in the lake, and the seas get rough, what do they do? They revert from faith to fear. They, they revert from trusting in the supernatural. They go back to superstition. That when Jesus comes and Peter says, oh, I, I want to get out there. I want to be where you are. And then he gets out there and all of a sudden he looks around and, and he starts to sink. I do not believe that faith and establishing our faith is a one and done situation. I reject this idea that if you do a 10-week discipleship course, you're discipled. I reject this idea that if you can pass a confirmation class, then boom, you've learned everything you need to know and you are confirmed by the church. I reject this idea that like I have one experience and then I will never have crises of faith again. Faith is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. And seeing Jesus feed the 5,000 plus, seeing Jesus feed all those people, while amazing, and you'd think, oh, that's it, that's all you'd ever need, and your faith is just rock solid. It's not the case. We always need to keep our eyes on Jesus. When Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus, he walked out towards him. When he lost sight of Jesus and he started looking at the wind and the waves and everything surrounding him, he began to sink. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, then we will continually grow from strength to strength in our faith and in our relationship with God. This is real life. The real life is that there's messed up stuff happening in the palace. Just like there is messed up stuff happening all around us in our community. That's real life. Real life is that Jesus is calling us to do this work and we can look around and say, I don't have the strength to do the work you're calling me to. Real life is that there are times when the wind and wave get our attention and we get our eyes off of Jesus. But what does he do? He grabs onto Peter and he pulls him up and they get in the boat. Real life faith is a lifelong process of surrendering to God. Here's the great news about that lifelong process. It gives me so much hope that we are not just one and done. I either have faith or I don't. That there's no limit as long as we are breathing and on this earth, there's nobody who's too far gone. It gives me humility to say there's no time on this earth that I have arrived. We will, there's a big theological word, it's called glorification. We will be glorified in Christ at eternity. 
And I, I have great faith in that. But in this world right now, we always need to have our faith firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. But here's the good thing. We can look around this world and all the problems and all the messes, but Jesus isn't done working. Where did they go? Why did it take them so long to get to the other side? Because they weren't just going back to Nazareth. They went to the area of the Gennesaret on the far opposite bank. They've been there before. You might remember Jesus went there and he cast the demon out of those demon-possessed men. And what did the people in that community do? They said, please leave. We don't want you here. So Jesus says, okay. And he gets in the boat and he goes back. But he leaves those two men and he says, go and proclaim what God has done in your life. And you might think, here's this, here's this guy who's he's like one person and there's 10 towns in that region. How, what can one person do? But by the time Jesus gets back, weeks, months later, the people are ready. Here's the work of this one guy. Something started small. And then when Jesus comes back, the people are ready. Maybe it's time to go again and in boldness share with your family, with your friends, with that neighbor you have. Maybe it's time again to step out in faith. And we may say, it's, it's nothing big. I don't have much. It's small. But we don't know what the work that we are doing now, which might seem like we're just pounding our head against the wall. We're just trying to push that stone up the hill. But when Jesus comes back, that work that he's had us been doing we'll see the harvest. That's real life faith. We talk about, you know, giants of the faith, you know, Moses, David, you know, Peter, Paul, these people, John the Baptist, and oh, they did big things. They did huge things. Billy Graham preached to thousands. But there's those little things that are never seen. One guy, we don't even know his name, but for weeks or months, he did what Jesus told him to do. And he declared Jesus is the Messiah in the region of the Gennesaret. He told people, I was possessed by demons, and Jesus freed me. And when Jesus came back, it says that the people came and they were healed. Real life faith is not often glamorous. Real life faith is often surrounded by the mess and the storm and all of the problems. And it starts small. But because our faith is in Jesus Christ, it can change the world. We just have to step out and keep our eyes on Jesus. And if you're not a believer, this is the time to grab hold of Jesus and to be healed. This is the moment. God bless you. We'll see you next week.